So we uh, concluded a sermon series just last week uh, titled Love Handles, and we were just looking at all the aspects of life that God's love handles. And we begin a week from today uh, an Advent sermon series that will be titled Christmas at the Movies. And so we're taking uh, various movie titles, and I'm not necessarily doing anything in relation to the movie. We're just using Christmas movie titles as sermon titles, and the, the messages will be based accordingly in sort of Advent themes. I think it'll work. Just bear with me. I think it'll work. So, uh, but uh, we will, um, the, the high point, if you will, or perhaps the low point of that will be Christmas Eve at the evening service. We'll, we'll worship, you get to worship twice on Christmas Eve this year, lucky you. It's on a Sunday, so it'll be the Sunday morning service, and then those of you who want to uh, can come back for the Christmas Eve service at 5.30. I think we gather for cookies, and then the Christmas Eve service at 6, and uh, the, the sermon title that day will be A Christmas Story, and there will be a, a pretty fun surprise for the kids, uh, so maybe it'll be the low point of the... Uh, and if anybody has that lamp, that would be a great day to bring it, and we'll just set it up here, the Christmas story, a Christmas story, you know the lamp I'm talking about? Do you have one, Sean? No? You sure? You want to make one for me? Yeah, it'd be great. <laughs> so wrong. What's that? <laughs> yeah, call Jim Harris. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Jim, Jim was one of our founding elders, and he was a Vietnam vet, and he, he donated one of his extremities to, the, to a rice paddy in Vietnam. And then one day at the worship team Christmas party, he, he had gotten fitted for a new prosthesis, so he took his old one and painted the toenails green and took the little the cup in the top of it and put a plant, a flowering plant in there and screwed it to a board and it was like a plant stand out of his old prosthesis. And so somebody, I don't know why, they didn't want it, but they left it on my front porch after the worship team Christmas party. And so I woke up the next day and came outside and there was this not so beautiful thing. So I brought it to church with me and then I put it in Craig Russell's front seat uh, while he was in here worshiping God. And he, he goes out to his car after church, and then he comes walking back in, and he just goes, how do you come up with this stuff? Like, what? You're just, your mind is warped. I'm like, well, I thought you'd want it for your, for your memorial veteran bar thing. And he's like, and he's like oh, Oh, I'll, I'll do that. So it is, if you want to see it, it's at the SS American Memorial. <laughs> sitting above the bar is Jim Harris's old prosthesis. So there you go. Uh, Hope Church for you right there. Um, where was I? I think we need to read some scripture. All right. So where I was going with all of this, we just concluded one series. We're beginning another one next week. Sorry, Rusty. Um, and I like to kind of pause between 
series and just kind of go to a text that I find to be uh, grounding in my own soul. And so this is one of those passages that uh, is in some ways really complicated. And in other ways, it's really straightforward and really simple and very purposeful. So the Apostle Paul is writing to a, a young church that he helped to start, and he is essentially just trying to give them the basics of what it means to be the church, what it means to live out this, this thing that Jesus did for us. And so this is the beginning of his letter to a young church that really doesn't fully understand yet what it means to be the church. And I think if, if we read this correctly, there's a few things you should derive from this scripture. One would be just the, the majesty of who God is and, and the, the length to which he went to work out our redemption, and then the security that comes from that, the, the, the rest that we can find for our souls in our Savior's work, and then just overall uh, the sense of gratitude that we are called to live with as Christians. And so, uh, as we reflect on God's grace this morning, uh, we will be in the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Beginning, at, We're going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 through 23, and, uh, and then we'll reflect on God's grace for a little while. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Okay, I realize that was a lot, particularly the last paragraph, which I think is just mostly one sentence, uh, up to verse 22 anyway. Uh, Paul had a way of just like going off on a thought, on a string of thoughts. And you may or may not know this about him, but he was legally blind He was what we would call legally blind. And he wrote most often uh, through a scribe. He would dictate to some poor guy that had to like write all this down as he was just thoughts were rolling. And so sometimes when you're reading things written by Paul, you have these long, ambling, rambling phrases and sentences and and translators sometimes don't know where to put commas or periods and any of this stuff because none of that existed back then. And uh, so it gets crazy in places. But if I can just boil this down to one thematic idea, it would be grace. This is a, a massive, masterful articulation of grace, of that which pours out from the heart of God toward us that we didn't earn or deserve or plan for or anticipate or in any way, shape, or form direct. This is the heart of God aiming through the halls of history at each of our little hearts, hurting though they may be, This arrow, its aim is true. He doesn't miss. He doesn't falter. He doesn't um, make any mistakes. He's aimed his love at your heart to show you what grace is. And so, what can we take away from this articulation of God's grace? First, uh, put simply, be blessed. Be blessed. Feel blessed. Know that you are blessed. God loves you. He's crazy about you. And he has gone to great lengths to make sure that you understand that. So, he chose you to receive his peace and to receive his righteousness. I was talking with the kids earlier, and um, when I would do this, like in a youth group context, 
I would take a, a bottle of you know, Ozarka spring water, good drinking water, and then I would get a little cup and take it out of the toilet. Or at least I'd tell the kids that I would never actually, you know, I'm too much of a germaphobe to just do that, right? But I would take a cup. I said, this water came out of the toilet, and I would just put a drop into the bottled water. I never had a kid take me up on the dare to drink it, right? One impure drop makes the whole thing a no-go, right? Um, and even, even my you know, class clown in the youth group would never dare to take me up on that one. So the point being that our, what we bring to this table of grace is our own sin. That's all we bring. The only thing that you and I contribute to our redemption, to God's redemptive plan, is our sin. And God looks at that and he says, okay, what is impure cannot be eternally bound to that which is pure. That's a, that's a logical impossibility. And so I need, to, I need to find some way to take my righteousness and my holiness and my, puri- and my purity and give it to them. Bathe them in whatever they need to be like me. And so God, before the foundations of the earth, before he created anything, figured all this out. He he says, I I love, my heart is to love. I want to create a people that I can show what love is. And when I do that, I'm going to give them freedom, and they're going to sin, and I need a plan to redeem them from that state. And so he then says... And I don't know if this is not, that's not even a logical or, or chronological then, but he also says, I know who they are before they ever exist. I know who they are and I want them in my family. And so we are chosen to receive his peace and his righteousness to be those vessels upon which God pours out his grace to the extent that we are changed eternally. And so we are to be blessed because he chose us. We're to be blessed because he loves us. The last little two words in verse four, which are actually should have been the, the, the Gregorian guy that put the number there, uh, he should be slapped for this one. I'll, I'll do that when I get there. Um, but the verse 5 notation should be in front of in love. You should not separate those ideas. So here's the deal. This, this word, predestination, sounds at the surface like a very cold-hearted word, concept, idea. The truth is, if we read this in context, the word is, is motivated solely by the love of God, guess what, for you. It's his love directed towards you that compelled him to do everything he's about to talk about, to send his son, 
to die for our sins, to redeem us from the grave, to give us hope and life eternal, and to bring us to the very throne of God. So be blessed because he chose you and he loves you. He has adopted you and he has redeemed you. This idea of adoption, I cannot overemphasize this this idea that God realizes in his eternal providence that we are orphaned by our sin. We are cut off. We are isolated. We are without hope in, in ourselves. And so he says, that one, that one is mine. Let me show you what love looks like. And he moves into uh, creation and past sin and into redemption to show us what love looks like. That action of God's arms spread wide on the cross is what love looks like. That is it. That's where he was going all along when he knew that he had to solve this problem of separation. And so he says, you are not orphaned. You are adopted into my family. Um, Be blessed. If if you walk away from this passage with any other interpretation of predestination you're missing the point the point of this word is that we should realize that we are blessed we are loved we are redeemed that is the context in which this theological idea is spoken so be blessed by his grace and paul goes on to tell us we mu- we should feel secure in his grace. This action of God to bring about your redemption was extremely purposeful. He was was working out a plan that you would be part of his family forever. And so we must claim our inheritance in Christ. This is what God has done for us, what he has achieved for us, and it's sitting there in front of us for us to um, lay hold of, if you will. He, first and foremost, has claimed you. Before anything existed, he called your name and said, mine. I'm going to bring you all the way through sin and death to my home eternal. And he has claimed you, and then if you look at what verse 12 says on the flip side of that, I think what he's saying is that we must proclaim him. Because he has claimed us, we must proclaim him. I'll just read those two verses together, if you will indulge me. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Okay, this is purposeful, divine action being described. 
There's no other way to understand this. God is deliberately seeking your redemption. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that we proclaim him to the world. We are the vessels through which his predestined love goes out and reaches the hearts of others. So you have here a God who is extremely purposeful in what he sets before us. That is all ours in Christ. We're to claim that inheritance and we're to look to his Holy Spirit for our strength. Paul tells us two things in these next two verses that are quite unusual. One, that the Holy Spirit is God's way of sealing the deal. That when we believe, when we come into this relationship with God through Christ, when that comes to life for us, God places the Holy Spirit in our hearts. It's the seal of the deal. It's his way of saying, I want you to know that something has happened. I want you to know, I want you to have assurance that I'm with you. And so he places the deposit of the Spirit in our hearts, which also guarantees our future eternity with him. So there's the inheritance we claim in Christ, and there's the deposit of the Holy Spirit that we look to for assurance. You are in safe hands. God has you. There will be days where it will feel as if he's dropped you. I, you know, you've heard the poem, Footprints in the Sand. Mine is titled, Butt Prints in the Sand. God's like, I'm sick of you whining, just drops me right there. So, I'm just kidding. It's like a joke, but smaller and not as funny. All right? He doesn't give up. He doesn't quit. He doesn't make mistakes. You are secure. I honestly believe this is one of the most critical components of Christianity. And when, when we miss this, we leave ourselves open to manipulation, to spiritual manipulation. For example, if I told you there were things you must do in order to be in good standing with God, then guess what? I have control over your life, at least a few things. I can put the fear of God into you about whether you do or don't do a certain set of things. I can spiritually manipulate you if you let me teach you that there's anything you have to do to be in good standing with God. Here's the most difficult thing about being a pastor or a Christian God gives all of us complete freedom to mess this up as royally as we might. But there's one thing that he's tied up and nailed down 
and will never slip through his fingers or yours. And that is your eternal security in Christ. If you have that, I cannot manipulate you. I cannot tell you what you have to do to be a good Christian. I can't tell you how much you have to give or how much you have to serve or what you have to say or what you have to do or not do or where you can go or where you can't go. And when you call me with some uh, pastoral conundrum, I can just smile and say, you're forgiven. You're loved. His grace cannot be undone. All right. So we're to be blessed by his grace. We're to be secure in his grace. And we are to be thankful for his grace. Paul rolls into a beautiful articulation of gratitude um, where he reminds us we are to pray for each other. Gratitude drives us to prayer. Um, And what is it that is that which we are to pray for? That our faith be a growing one. So whatever, whatever predestination is, whatever this word means that Paul uses twice in this chapter, it does not mean that you can stop praying or that you can stop growing. You are called to engage this gift that he has given you, to move with the spirit that he has deposited in your heart, to let him change you and grow you into the man or woman of God that he created you to be. And so we're to pray for each other that our faith may be a growing one and that his power may be realized in our lives. The immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. What what is it in your life that seems insurmountable? Whatever your answer to that question is, His power is available to you. Think about that. The power of the God who created, who redeemed, who restores, who loves. His power is alive within you. Nothing can stand against you. And so, we are to pray for each other that our faith may be growing and his power may be realized in our lives. And we are to praise his son. This is such a mind-blowing truth that Paul lays out here that an infant that was born in poverty, that grew up in obscurity, that gave his life on a cross, 
who died a death of shame and rejection and humiliation, that that would be the one who would change all of eternity and each of our hearts. And when it's all over, God says, "That's now you see it. You see where I've been going all along. And I'm raising him from that death of shame to the very right hand of the throne of God Almighty. What you saw in Christ is the greatest expression of love and grace humankind has ever seen. And we are to praise him as we see the whole picture, as we see the awesome creation and creative nature of our God, the ugly fall of humanity into sin, and the redemptive love that drove him to that cross. And God says, this is the one I want everyone to see. Lift him up. Put him where he belongs. Because this is what love is. We're to respect the position of Christ. And we are to value his church. That's not just us, but his church globally. But let me just read those last two verses here. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We have the one who did it all at our disposal. Not really disposal is probably not the right word, sorry. But he is ours. The fullness of the person of Christ is yours. It is ours. He has been given to us that we would be his people. God took this Jesus who he raised from total humility and death, or humiliation and death would be a better way to say that, brought him to the right hand of God the Father Almighty and then gave him to us. There is nothing that we did to deserve that. It is all by grace to the praise of his glory. He calls you his body on earth. We are the hands and feet of Christ to others. You are part of God's family and you are part of God's redemptive plan to grow his family. I personally find that this concept of predestination is the most comforting and strengthening doctrine we have because it includes everything from God's pre-creation mind all the way through our sin, our separation from God, the person and work of Christ on the cross, 
his grave, his resurrection, and his ascension to the right hand of the Father, and his regifting of his Son to his people. We are blessed. We are loved beyond what we can even comprehend. And we belong to the God of all power over all creation and all that is not created. He is your Redeemer. Will you pray with me? God our Father, it is by grace we have been saved. Through faith, this is not of ourselves. And we thank you that we are found in the position of being loved. But Lord, you have not called us to just sit there. You have called us to go forth to proclaim that love and that grace to others that your adopted family might grow. That you would use us as part of your redemptive plan is humbling. And so we pray that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit and that the presence of your love and your sacrifice through your Son and all that you have done to bring about our redemption would change us into the men and women of God that you created us to be. And that as we serve you and glorify you, your kingdom would grow. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, here on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.